You know our rights under the Constitution, that no man should be condemned or jailed until we have had a free and impartial trial. We claim to be citizens of the United States, and we ask for the rights of citizenship. We claim to be loyal to our country, and we are loyal to our country, and all we ask is that we shall have our rights. We claim that we are citizens of the United States of America, according to the amendment to the Constitution. You know that that guarantees us free and equal rights, and that is all we ask. Testimony of George Eccles, Minor and UMWA Organizer. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. And if you haven't already done so, please leave a review and rating at Apple Podcasts, which will help more friends find the show. This is the final episode in a three-part series on the West Virginia Mine Wars, a series of armed conflicts between coal mine operators and employees in the Mountain State. The first episode was about the conditions in the West Virginia coal fields in the years leading up to the Mine Wars. The first of these conflicts, which I discussed in the second episode, took place from 1912 to 1913 around the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek strikes. As usual, I've inserted a tone where the N-word was used in the original text. Many members of the UMWA, United Mine Workers Association, District 17, were dissatisfied with the settlement that ended the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek strikes. From the union rank and file, Cabin Creek miner Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney from Paint Creek emerged as leaders. At one point, Keeney and other men formed a separate District 30. The offshoot faced financial and other challenges and was not recognized by the UMWA at first. But, as Mooney writes in his autobiography, Struggle in the Coalfields, quote, Keeney was all fire and dynamite. He asked for and showed no quarter. The International Union was eventually forced to assume the autonomy of the district, end quote. The UMWA put in two of its international organizers as officers, and Keeney and the other secessionists were allowed to remain as full members. By 1916, Mooney was receiving many letters encouraging him to run for union office. He writes, I visited Eskdale, the residing place of Frank Keeney, Lawrence Dwyer, and others who were vitally interested in building an organization in West Virginia. We conferred as to who should accept the nomination for this office and that. Keeney and I were being nominated for various positions, and it seemed as if either of us could take political chances for almost any honor the miners of District 17 were able to confer. Obe Clendenin suggested that I run for president and Keeney for secretary. But at this point, Dwyer offered a suggestion. He said, quote, I believe Keeney is the stronger man, and if elected, would be better fitted to fill the office of president because of his experience in the secession government, end quote. To this arrangement, I agreed. Keeney was to accept the nomination for president, I for secretary-treasurer. 
So it was agreed, and Dwyer further stated, quote, If we can get you and Keeney elected as president and secretary-treasurer, we don't care who is elected VP and executive board members. You and Keeney can hold the others in line. During the campaign, Keeney's opponents criticized his involvement in the secession movement. Keeney responded, Yes, I led a secession movement against the most degraded group of crooks, drunks, and double dealers that was ever known to infest the body politic of a labor union, but never at any time or place did I or my associates do otherwise than swear our allegiance to the miners' union. Keeney and Mooney won the election and took office in January 1917. Within a few months, they added over 2,000 members and 12 new districts. Keeney and UMWA International President John White also negotiated what Lawrence Dwyer called the best wage contract in 20 years for District 17. Then in April, the United States entered World War I. Coal was needed to fuel train locomotives and Navy ships. It was also necessary for steel production. The higher demand for coal, along with the labor shortage, led to an increase in miners' wages. Even those gains, miners felt, did not align with rising living costs or with increases that workers in other industries enjoyed. After the war, there was an economic downturn. Coal companies laid off miners and tried to return wages to their pre-war levels. And while union membership had grown nationwide to an all-time high during the war, operators had succeeded in keeping the union out of the West Virginia counties of Mingo and Logan. Like Kanawha County, the focus of Episode 2, these counties were in the southwestern part of the state. Mingo was on the Kentucky border. Logan County is northeast of Mingo. And I'll go ahead and mention Boone County, which will be very important later. And it's between Kanawha and Logan. So, starting at the Kentucky border and going northeast, it's Mingo, Logan, Boone, Kanawha. Logan County was sheriffed by Don Chafin, who was on coal operator's payroll with an annual salary of $30,000. As reported in the June 30, 1920, Charleston Daily Mail, J.M. Vest, president and general manager of the Rum Creek Collieries Company, is quoted here. At the present time, we contribute a cent a ton to the funds of the Logan Coal Operators Association for all purposes. Our income is approximately $100,000 a year, and out of that money, perhaps 30000 exactly 32700 is contributed to the sheriff for police protection, and we have contributed largely to the Salvation Army Fund. In Logan County, we have 25 deputy sheriffs and three constables. We have a population of a little over 60,000 scattered over an area of 400 square miles. Chafin was respected by many Logan residents. His obituary in the Huntington Herald-Dispatch called him, quote, colorful and dynamic, end quote, and, credit, and credited him with, quote, spearhead of a drive to prevent invasions by Union men, end quote. Chafin's deputies routinely p patrolled train stations for Union supporters and organizers. Chafin and his deputies removed the so-called troublemakers however they saw fit. Once, they arrested national organizers who'd been sent to the county by Mother Jones. Chafin intended to kill the men, but his deputy said, quote, 
Don, you can pistol whip them if you want, but I don't think it would be a good idea to kill them, end quote. The men were beaten, but they lived. On another occasion, one of Chafin's spies reported back that Reverend Alfred Eubanks had spoken positively of the UMWA at a prayer meeting. Reverend Eubanks was promptly pistol-whipped for this crime. And Chafin told Luther Mills that he would be a, quote, dead if he didn't spy on his fellow African-American miners. In late summer 1919, rumors that Chafin's men were harassing men suspected of attending labor meetings reached Charleston, the capital, about 70 miles north of Logan County. On September 4th, armed miners began gathering just outside of Charleston in Marmot. By the next day, 5,000 men had gathered, ready to march to Logan County. Democratic Governor John Cornwell, elected in 1917, addressed the men to convince them to disperse. He said, Boys, do you not know that every one of you is acting in violation of every law against bearing arms, that you are taking the law into your own hands? The gunman system is a condition that I did not create and a system to which I am opposed, and I assure you that my good office shall be used during the time I remain governor in an effort to eradicate this system from your state. Many of the men decided not to march. 1,500 marched about 25 miles of the way to Danville before returning home. Cornwell convened an investigative commission as promised. However, the state legislature was dominated by coal operators, and the commission's findings did not support the union's claims of abuse. Two months after the aborted march, in November, over 400,000 miners went on a nationwide strike. Workers were calling for a 60% wage increase and 30-hour work week. President Woodrow Wilson ordered federal troops into several of the states. The five-week strike ended when Wilson proposed a 14% pay increase and an arbitration panel to review the workers' demands. The next year, in March of 1920, the Bituminous Coal Commission recommended that UMWA miners receive a 27% wage increase. Of course, this did not benefit non-union miners, including those in Mingo County, West Virginia. While 40,000 of the strikers had been in West Virginia, non-union mines in the state remained open, undermining the union's efforts. UMWA directed its attention to Mingo, determined to prevent this situation from happening again. Mother Jones made speeches and Frank Keeney wrote to the operators requesting meetings, but his requests were rebuffed. Workers who did join the union or made other attempts to improve their conditions were harassed, fired, and blacklisted. Frank Ingham, a 30-year veteran of the mines, testified of being fired from Howard Collieries in Williamson and evicted in July 1920 after joining the union. Like 18% of his fellow Mingo miners, Ingham was African-American. Two weeks after starting a new job, the manager there informed Ingham that his former employer had called. Quote, Frank, I have had a telephone message from the manager of the mine that you left, and he says that you belong to the union, and he advised us to get rid of you, end quote, which they did. After five days at his next job, Ingham was fired for the same reason. Ingham was able to find yet another job. Before a Senate committee investigating conditions in the West Virginia coal fields, 
Ingham testified about what happened when he returned to Williamson to visit his sister. Mr. Ingham, when I came back to Williamson, I was arrested by a prohibition officer by the name of Collins. He searched me in front of the station in the presence of many people there, and he carried me through the station and put me in jail, and on the way from the station to the jail, he says, what we ought to do with him. He cursed me and called me abusive names. He says, what we ought to do with him is not to take him to jail, but to riddle his body with bullets on the street. I says, gentlemen, what have you all got me for? He says, shut up, don't open your mouth, I'll blow your brains out. Senator Thomas Sterling from South Dakota. Who said that? Mr. Ingham, the officer that arrested me. Senator Samuel Shortridge from California. What was his name? Mr. Ingham, that was Collins. They were joined by Mr. Carter and Ed. Senator Sterling, who was he? Captain S.B. Davis, Williamson Coal Operators Association. That was not in this county at all. Mr. Ingham, if you will allow me, I will tell you the whole story. They put me in jail. Welch Jail is in the county seat of McDowell County, and the sheriff came in, S.A. Daniels, and I said, Sheriff, would it be possible for me to speak to lawyer Joe Crockett, who knows me, and find out why I am being held here? He shook his finger in my face and says, I am not going to let you out of jail. I says, then would it be possible for me to get a message to my wife so that she may know that I am detained in jail? He says, the only message you can get out will be to God, and unless you hurry, you will fail in that. Ingham continues to describe his ordeal of being released from his cell at midnight and being driven down the road supposedly to make a statement. When he questioned that plan, he was hit on the head with an iron club. Ingham's hands were tied with a pair of suspenders that one of the officers was wearing. After a short ride, Ingham was dragged out of the car, beaten, kicked in the face, robbed of the $25.07 he had on him, then left for dead. Ingham speaks of praying to God and believing that God heard his prayer. He believed he was arrested because of his union activity and explains why. The men at the Howard Mine had asked the manager for a cost-of-living increase, an addition of $0.10 per car to the $0.66 they were receiving. The miners agreed to keep working while the request was being considered. Ingham continues. That was on Monday, and on Thursday of that week, word came through the men by the mine's foreman and assistant foreman that the company had agreed to pay $0.09 on the car and wanted to know how they felt about it and the men at that time were well satisfied. But when they came out of the mines that evening, we found a notice posted on the company's office there that every article that was necessary for the men, that all of these articles, the list price had advanced in price from 5 to 25 cents on the article, and making it compulsory that the miners shall buy exclusively in the store. We expressed dissatisfaction in regard to that, and the result was that Three of the same men in the mob that handled me were called to Chatteroy, and they began to beat the people over the head with pistols, and they would make and they would take the pistols and they would punch them in the side with the pistols. The chairman. Were you there when they were doing that? 
Mr. Ingham. Yes, sir, I was there when they were doing that, and they took a fellow by the name of Mellon, and they told him to get off the job and to get off the job quick, and he said that he had $32 worth of mining clothes in the mine. He did not want to leave them in the mine, but wanted to go into the mine to get them. They said, Don't give us any of your impudence, and struck him in the side of the head. And they said to him, If you give me any back talk, I will knock a hole through the side of your head that a cat can jump through. They had a pistol against his side at the time. Coal mine operators relied heavily on the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency to tell them which employees were involved with the union. Agency co-owner Tom Feltz addressed the following letter to the secretary of the Coal Operators Association in the Williamson Field, which included Mingo County, West Virginia, and Pike County, Kentucky. Dear Sir, I quote you below, report received from Operative 24, dated Matewan, May 14th. There was a mass meeting of the miners here tonight, which was attended by about 500 men. The speaking was done in the open between the railroad depot and the street. Mother Jones did not arrive, neither were there any district or national men present. Preacher Combs, who is well known and who has been signing up the men, was the first speaker, following by a Negro preacher named Johnson. The meeting was opened with a song and a prayer, after which Combs made a radical talk in which he said that the operators bitterly opposed the union and had managed to keep most of the poor miners in ignorance about the benefits derived from the union by telling them that that union was composed of loafers and men who did not want to earn a living by work. The spy reported some other statements about miners' demands, including for payment based on a standard ton of 2,000 pounds as opposed to a long ton of 2,200 pounds. He also addressed allegations and threats of violence. He continues, He said all businessmen were organized and that if the laborers did not organize, they would always be in bondage to the bidding of the capitalist. He said the superintendents were going to all the members with a paper to be signed, which was an agreement that the miner would sign his birth right away for five years' house rent. Combs said that no man would sign it, that those who did were not as good as a yellow dog. He stated that the superintendent or operator who would ask his fellow man to sign such a paper did not have a heart, that he carried a gizzard around in a heart's place. He said he hoped the men would all go home and tell their wives that they had decided to make a change, to tell her that they were going to recognize the miners as human beings and that they intended to give them their just dues, a part of what they earn. He said the Negroes were once in bondage and Abraham Lincoln gave them their freedom. And now the miners, both black and white, were in bondage and that the United Mine Workers were going to give them their liberty. He said the sheriff was one man who had lived up to his promises when he was a candidate for office. And if he continued to do so, he would, he would be elected to any office in the county that he asked for. After this particular rally, two to three hundred men signed up with the union. When the new union men members went to their jobs at Burnwell, they were fired. A couple of weeks later, the Red Jacket Mine announced that it would not hire union members. Multiple companies also hired the Baldwin Feltz Agency to evict miners who refused to sign so-called yellow dog contracts. Within days, 
two to 3,000 men would join the Union, some of whom had already been evicted. The UMWA rented land on Lick Creek and provided tents and rations for the displaced and unemployed miners. According to the coal companies, these tents were designed to manipulate public opinion. To be exact, they said in a spokesman's Senate testimony, these tent colonies were instituted at the beginning of the strike by the United Mine Workers Organization. They furnished shelter for the workers who had been induced to strike, and in them, that organization supported in idleness all those who preferred to stay on the spot rather than seek work elsewhere. The companies offered to pay the moving expenses to union fields of former employees, their families, and household goods. The organization used these tent colonies as a means of securing public sympathy and as a reason for raising a national assessment. The tent colony has come to be recognized primarily as a weapon of offense of the United Mine Workers Organization and not as a relief organization. In Episode 2, Mrs. Janyana Seville gave us a view into the violence with which these evictions were sometimes conducted. Journalist and socialist activist McAllister Coleman observed the same and writes about it in his 1943 book, Men and Coal. The deputies wore sawed-off shotguns, high-powered rifles, and revolvers when they removed miners and their families from their company-owned houses. Coleman also writes about what it was like for families setting, settling in to the tent colonies. I once drove up on a Union truck loaded with tents and food to the outskirts of a town where an hour before sunup, six families had been set out. Through slashing rains, our truck sloshed along a valley trail to the coal camp where we found the women drenched in house dresses trying to calm their frightened children. They had taken refuge under the shed back of a small church. The men were standing ankle-deep in the creek water that had overflowed its banks and was swirling past the door sills of the company houses. In the sulfur-yellow water, there was a confusion of broken bedsteads, cribs, chairs, tables, toys. Some of the crew of the truck lent a hand to the men in salvaging what they could, while the rest tackled the difficult job of erecting wet tents once used by the Canadian Army in World War I. When finally the tents were up and a communal cook stove had been coaxed into action in the mess tent, the women went about the job of setting up housekeeping all over again, swapping jokes about the pleasures of camping out. There was no child psychologist around, but had there been, he would have approved of the effect of this serene behavior upon the jangled nerves of the youngsters. Once out of the earshot of the children, however, these women expressed themselves in no uncertain terms. Their lives of idleness, as the press agents for the operators had it, were shortened by the active service on the picket lines that were thrown around the mine tipple, lines which strikebreakers hesitated to cross, by toting water to the tents from a mountain spring a mile distant, by scrubbing and cooking, and trying as best they could to keep their children from running wild. But as Coleman writes in a 1925 piece entitled Kanaz Fighting Rednecks, the difficulty of tent life did not seem to shake the women's resolve. One wife said to him, I tell you, young man, said a tall, raw-boned wife of a miner 
who was trying to get dinner on a cook stove in a leaky tent and at the same time keep four small children in order. It's no fun keeping house in one of these army tents. But if you aim to write a piece about all this, you put it down that we ain't going back. Not until we get our rights, we ain't. If I was to think for one minute that my man would go scabbing, I'd quit him cold. There was the same spirit under every rain-soaked tent which I entered. The women, who as usual bear the brunt of the fight, are 100% union. The wife whose husband will work non-union is a social pariah. Miners' wives also spoke their minds on the picket lines. From a mine near Fairmont in the northern part of the state, the leaders of a group of 100 picketing women were taken to the town lockup. To the displeasure of the hotel patrons across the street, the imprisoned women sang, Just like a mule, a G.D. fool will scab until he dies. The sheriff, flooded with angry phone calls, begged the women to stop. They responded with another union song. The sheriff finally let the women go, and they returned to the picket line the next morning. At another picket line, union women held so-called prayer meetings. One woman prayed for all to hear that God would spare the lives of the poor, misguided strikebreakers who were taking bread from the mouths of decent workers. She prayed they wouldn't throw their picks into a gassy pocket, that they wouldn't be crushed by falling rocks or dismembered by runaway mine cars. The chairman of the Senate committee that investigated West Virginia mine conditions got to see tent life for himself. Senator William Kenyon of Iowa traveled to the Lick Creek tent colony. With his own eyes, he saw the tents that the gunmen had reportedly slashed with knives. Among others, he spoke with George Eccles, from whom we heard at the beginning of this episode. Born in slavery, Eccles became a miner, joined the Union, and was elected vice president of his racially integrated Union chapter. These were called locals. Like so many others, Eccles was evicted from company housing and moved to the Lick Creek Colony. Though coal camps and public schools were segregated, Lick Creek was not. Black and white miners lived side by side. But Mingo County Sheriff G.T. Blankenship, mentioned in Tom Feltz's letter to the Williamson operators, knew the history of Paint Creek and Cabin Creek. He was concerned that the evictions by coal company hires, rather than county officials, would escalate into similar violence. Blankenship arrested Albert Feltz for processing illegal eviction notices and ordered him and 27 other agents to appear in court. After they were released, the agents left town. A short time later, they returned. This time, they had authorization signed by the magistrate. On May 19, 1920, after evicting striking miners in Red Jacket, Al Feltz, Lee Feltz, and 11 of the detectives started out of town. At 4 p.m., Matewan Police Chief Sid Hatfield confronted them near the railroad station. The chief was born Albert Sidney Hatfield, and before joining the force, he worked in the mines and had been a UMWA member. He'd been a coal loader, then a blacksmith, then a handler. As a handler, he sent loaded mine cars down the mountain to the tipple from which coal would be loaded into railroad cars. While Smiling Sid had a mouthful of gold and silver fillings, he was also known for his quick and violent temper. Early in his mining days, he got into an argument that ended with a dead pit boss. 
Hatfield claimed self-defense, and no charges were filed. On the afternoon of May 19th, Sid Hatfield was with Mate Juan Mayer, Cable C. Testerman, as well as numerous miners whom Hatfield had encouraged to arm themselves. Hatfield tried to arrest Al Feltz for the illegal evictions and for illegally carrying firearms in his jurisdiction. Feltz, in turn, tried to arrest Hatfield. There was an argument, then shooting. Hatfield later said that it was Al Feltz who shot first. Several miners and detectives joined in. When the shooting stopped, Mayor Testerman, two miners, and seven detectives, including the Feltz brothers, were dead. Sid Hatfield emerged, emerged from the clash as a hero to West Virginia miners and gained a level of national fame. Hatfield and several miners were charged with murder in what became known as the Matewan Massacre, but they were released on $3,000 bond. UMW President John L. Lewis was in Washington during the massacre, and he sent a telegram to Governor Cornwell. Press dispatches today tell of another shocking outrage in the long list of such incidents that have been perpetrated in your state by private detectives in the employ of coal, of coal corporations. Undoubtedly, the American public must be astounded to know that such conditions can exist in any state in this union. For years, the terrible evil of this system has been pointed out, but this latest outrage indicates that little or nothing has been done to ensure to peaceable citizens the right to live. Twelve human lives have been sacrificed to this system, and the blood of those twelve men must be found on the hands of those who could prevent such murders, but who failed to do so. I desire once more to direct your attention to the failure of the state of West Virginia to afford protection to its citizens in the coal mining districts, and to urge that policies be adopted and measures carried out that will prevent further lawless activities by these murderous hirelings of coal operators. Mingo County miners continued to join UMWA, spurred by the 27% pay increase for union miners, anti-union contracts, and the evictions. District 17 reached out to the Operators Association for negotiations, but they refused and the evictions continued. The following is one response to the requests for meetings, dated June 30th. Dear Sir, we have before us your telegram of the 25th instant requesting us to meet the representatives of your organization in an effort to negotiate a wage agreement for the Williamson Field and to arrive at an amicable settlement of all matters in difference between the miners and their employers. Our position is, first, that the wages we pay our employees represent a higher scale than are paid the miners in the organized fields under your scale and therefore to agree with you upon a scale of wages to be paid our employees would mean a reduction in wages. Second, the most amicable relation has hitherto existed between this company and its employees, and most of our men who have joined your union during the last two weeks have done so at the solicitation of your agitators. The men not having been advised that the scale of wages and working conditions prescribed by your organization will be destructive of individual efforts and a reduction in wages. Third, had this field been organized last winter, 
the country at large would have undergone undue suffering on account of lack of production of coal occasioned by your strike. In the interest of our employees and the public generally, we respectfully decline to meet your representatives as you requested in your telegram. Very truly yours, Pond Creek Byproducts Coal Company, S.H. Goodlow, Jr., President. By now, 90% of miners in Mingo County had joined the union, and 185 families were living in UMWA-provided tents. On July 1st, Frank Keeney called for a strike. Coal companies continued their operations with skeleton crews and also attempted to bring in strikebreakers. The UMWA paid the return fare for those they dissuaded from crossing the picket line. Those who stayed faced, in the words of one employer, quote, scathing denunciation, vilification, threats, and in fre- frequent cases, assaults, end quote. The opposing sides were well-armed, and violence prevailed in Mingo County for months. Striking miners attacked non-union collieries with dynamite, and company-paid guards attacked miners' tent colonies. Six employees of the Borderland Mine died when miners attacked on August 21st. Coal operators asked Governor Cornwell to send in state police. State Police Commander Jackson Arnold refused, unwilling to have his officers used as, quote, stationary guards. The governor eventually called in the State National Guard, which at the time was still federalized. The troops arrived in Mingo County eight days after the borderland attack. They were withdrawn after two weeks, but returned after miners shot and killed two men at a colliery near the Tug River. 500 soldiers occupied the county courthouse, stood at guard mines, and enforced a ban on on public assemblies. A U.S. District Court judge prohibited Sid Hatfield, Frank Keeney, and all UMWA members from advertising or announcing the strike in any way. Operators also found that now, with unemployment in the coal industry at over 10%, they were able to pay even lower wages than before the strike started. But thousands of striking miners held fast. And Keeney and Mooney believed that if the Mingo strike failed, UMWA had no chance of organizing other open shop fields. The union would spend over a million dollars on hired organizers, tents, rations, medicine, and relief payments for the miners. As the strike stretched into the Christmas season, Mother Jones delivered presents to children who had been living in the tents for months. Wives of Army officers brought medicine and clothes to barefoot children. Neil Birkinshaw, reporter for The Nation, called the scene Labor's Valley Forge. In the tent colonies, the destitution and hardship has become appalling. Huddled under canvas that flapped and strained at the guy ropes in the high winds, I found hundreds of families gathered about pitifully small fires. In most cases, the twen- tent dwellers were living on the bare, frozen earth, the most fortunate having simply a strip of oilcloth or carpet as floor covering. Several children have died of pneumonia, and it was pitiful to see any number of newborn babies there, and worst, many women pregnant. But on the whole, the health of the tent dwellers is good. I saw scores of barefooted children whose only garment was a thin calico or gingham dress. 
Not a dozen men possessed overcoats, and most of them had nothing but thin overall suits. The women almost invariably wore gingham, a lucky few having sweaters or cheap coats. However, the United Mine Workers Organization is meeting the clothing shortage and doing the best it can to relieve the hardship of the tents. More than $150,000 worth of clothing was ordered recently, and arrangements, arrangements have been made to provide lumber for flooring. The union has made an allowance for food, $5 a week for each man, two for each woman, and one for each child. Many of the families camped on Mate Creek were driven from Mohawk, McDowell County. They were not given time to remove their household effects, and they cannot go back even for their own personal property, as the penalty is brutal, assault, or possibly death. Lee Perdue, an independent storekeeper at Mohawk, who dared the wrath of the coal operators by handling grocery orders for the miners, was besieged in his store by, by company gunmen who fired more than a thousand bullets through the building. At Lick Creek, I found Oscar Aliff, who, awakened after midnight by a party of armed men come to turn him out of doors, had pleaded in vain for his sick wife. With three little children, all under five, they were driven from their home, shots flew over their heads as they went, and they were forced to sit up all night in the tent of a colored miner, who hospitably welcomed them to his rude shelter. The plight of the Acadians was no more terrible. Not everyone was sympathetic. When McAllister Coleman visited the state, a horse dealer told him, quote, I hope them rednecks freeze to death. We don't want no unions in this part of the country, end quote. On Christmas Eve, restrictions were lifted so that people could gather in the courthouse square around a decorated spruce tree. Miners, soldiers, and townspeople sang carols, including Silent Night. In the new year, troops began withdrawing from the state after Governor Cornwell reassured War Secretary Newton Baker that the state would maintain law and order. Sid Hatfield and other Mate Wan men stood trial for the killings of Al and Tom Feltz and other detectives from their agency. The prosecution aimed to prove that Hatfield had committed premeditated murder. The defense, led by UMWA attorney Harold Houston, focused on the coal operators and blamed them and their paid guards for the bloodshed. But trial spectators were shocked when Charles Everett Lively took the stand. Tom Feltz had sent Lively to Mingo County to work undercover as a miner. He even managed to get fired for being too friendly with a union supporter. Lively befriended Hatfield and testified about their conversations. The prosecution asked, Did Sid Hatfield make any statement to you at any time as to who killed Testerman? C.E. Lively. Yes, sir, he did. Prosecutor. Who did he say killed Mayor Testerman? Lively. He said he did. Prosecutor. State to the jury in what way he made that statement. Lively. We were talking about the killing. He said after Albert Feltz was shot, he shot Mayor Testerman. Testerman was getting too well lined up with those Baldwin men. Lively also testified. Well, at one time, Sid and I were talking. I asked him if he was married. He said, no, and a poor chance to get married. That another man had the woman he wanted. I took it more as a joke than anything else. I said, you must be crazy about that little blonde. He said, 
She's not a blonde. She's a brunette. I will have her if I have to go through hell to get her. Incidentally, Testerman's widow, Jessie Lee Maynard, married Sid Hatfield 13 days after Testerman was killed. During the cross-examination, the defense attorney brought forth that Lively had worked as a spy for 10 years in at least three other states. Quote, So you used your membership to practice falsehood and deceit? With your union card in your pocket, you worked against the union? End quote. Lively also admitted that Sid Hatfield had been offered $1,000 and a monthly salary to take a machine gun into Matewan, but Hatfield had refused. Defense witnesses testified that the killings were in self-defense, that Feltz had promised to kill Hatfield and Testerman, and that Feltz shot first. There were cheers, handshakes, and backslapping in the town of Matewan when the defendants were acquitted. Lon Savage records a possibly apocryphal story about the verdict in his 1986 book, Thunder in the Mountains. They still tell how the jury reached its verdict. One of the jurors, a farmer from the little town of Gilbert, far back in the mountain wilderness, had looked at the other jurymen and then looked out the window at the mountains. When the trial started, he said, the mountains were brown and bare. Now the trial was ending, and the mountains were turning green, and the dogwood and laurel were about to bloom. He was ready to sit there, he said, until the mountains turned brown again and the dogwoods bloomed again, before he'd vote to convict a single Matewan boy. West Virginia miners may have rejoiced in this victory over the mine operators and their paid guards, but the economic recession of 1921 gave coal companies the upper hand by making cheap labor even more readily available. The recent state and national elections didn't favor labor interests either. The new president, Warren Harding, had run with the slogan, Return to Normalcy, and showed little inclination for government intervention in the ongoing labor disputes. In a May 1920 speech, he had declared, America's present need is not heroics, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. Not the dramatic, but the dispassionate. Not experiment, but equipoise. Not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. He also said, The world needs to be reminded that all human ills are not curable by legislation and that quantity of statutory enactment and excess of government offer no substitute for quality of citizenship. The coal operator's preferred candidate, Ephraim Morgan, won the West Virginia governor's race. When the new state legislature convened, it passed a bill that allowed a county criminal trial to pull a jury from outside the county. The bill was sponsored by one of Hatfield's prosecutors and was clearly meant to neutralize the advantage that defendants like Hatfield would enjoy in pro-union communities. The legislature also voted to double the size of the police force, which would help the governor crack down on any strike-related violence. The strike that Frank Keeney had called in July of 1920 was still in effect, and coal companies continued their importation of strikebreakers. 
union members continued their attempts to shut down coal production in non-union mines, as reported by State Police Captain James R. Brockus to the Senate Committee that later investigated the conflict. January 27th, the mine of the Stone Mountain Coal Corporation at Matewan was entered by unknown parties and damage done to electrical appliances, etc. March 20, approximately 300 shots fired into the mining camp at Merrimack. The firing was from the Kentucky side of the, in the vicinity of Stringtown. Stringtown is a camp or a little town, a group of houses occupied, I should say by members of the United Mine Workers who owned their own property and formerly worked at Merrimack. March 20, approximately 60 shots fired at Rose Siding into the mining camp of the Thacker Coal Mining Company at 7.45 in the morning. UMWA Attorney Harold Houston. What date is that, Captain? Captain Brockus. March 29th. Firing resumed at 8.45 on the same day and approximately 75 additional shots were fired. That firing took place just about the time the men were going to work. April 3rd. Approximately 25 shots fired from the Lick Creek Tent Colony, about three miles east of Williamson. April 5. On this evening, the mining camp of White Star Coal Company was fired into, and the firing covered a period of about one hour. It is estimated that from three to 5,000 shots were fired. Also, the car occupied by myself, the sheriff, one deputy sheriff, and two or three state police, two cars they were, were fired upon as we went from Merrimack to Sprigg, just after dark. They appeared to be firing at the headlights, the firing coming from the Kentucky side of the river. Bullets struck over close to the cars, although the cars were not hit. April 5, firing at Sprigg, and it is estimated that 500 shots were fired, and the headquarters of the state police at that station was fired into, three bullets passing it through their quarters. A steel rod passed through the walls of the house, indicated that the shots came from the vicinity of Day Phillips's house, who, as I understand it, is secretary of the local at Sprigg, and who was later indicted for the murder of Harry Statton on the 12th of May this year. May 12th was the day that the Union escalated its attacks on the towns of Merrimack, Rawl, Sprigg, and Matewan. It was almost exactly one year after the Matewan Massacre. In Merrimack, the Union severed telegraph and phone lines. One blast of a cow horn signaled the start of shooting. At three blasts, the shooting would stop. Police, mine guards, and non-Union miners shot back. Thousands of men may have shot as many as 10,000 rounds that day. Women and children hid in closets as bullets flew into the walls of homes. Governor Morgan sent in 60 state police officers, led by Captain Brockus. Brockus had reached the rank of major in the Army during World War I and was a lieutenant colonel when he retired from the Army Reserve Corps in 1920. His report to headquarters was, The situation is serious, and unless steps are taken to disarm all persons on both sides of the river, officers will be ambushed, houses shot up, and murder committed by the wholesale. Arms and ammunition are being purchased daily from the local merchants and shipped in by express. Under the present conditions, we have no authority to take a rifle from a man whom we might meet on the public road with a load of ammunition going direct to the firing.
On May 14th, he reported, It is useless to try to enforce law and maintain order in this county if every man is permitted to go freely with a high-power rifle swung across his back and sack full of ammunition. Rifles are being purchased freely wherever they are offered for sale, and ammunition is coming in by the thousand rounds. Had we the authority to disarm every man caught with a rifle, the situation would soon improve, it is believed. Police negotiated a truce on May 15th, ending the three-day battle on the banks of the Tug River. At least four people died and several more were wounded. Governor Morgan wired President Harding, quote, situation absolutely beyond control of state and county authorities, end quote, and pleaded for federal troops. After his military leaders in the state assessed the situation, the president decided against sending troops until he could be, quote, well assured that the state had exhausted all of its resources in the performance of its functions, end quote. On May 19th, the first anniversary of the Battle of Matewan, the governor received Army intelligence that there could be more bloodshed. He declared martial law. His declaration had nine rules and orders prohibiting mobs and riots, meetings, and parades. It also stated that anyone carrying weapons or ammunition outside of their homes or business, quote, shall be arrested, disarmed, detained, and imprisoned, end quote. And no publication, either newspaper, pamphlet, handbill, or otherwise, reflecting in any way upon the United States or the state of West Virginia or their officers, or tending to influence the public mind against the United States or the state of West Virginia or their officers, may be published, distributed, displayed, or circulated in said Mingo County, and the publication, distribution, displaying, or circulation of any such publication above specified is prohibited, and any person or persons violating this paragraph shall be arrested, detained, and imprisoned. Since the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals had ruled that martial law could only be enforced by a state militia, and West Virginia did not have a state militia, the Mingo militia fulfilled the role. It was made of coal company officials, strike breakers, and other Mingo men who opposed the Union. Circulation of the state's Union newspaper was halted, and UMWA was prevented from circulating any of its publications. Anyone deemed a troublemaker could be arrested and held without charges or a trial. Union men were arrested en masse for offenses including reading the Union paper, Major Thomas B. Davis oversaw this special force of 800 and told the nation, quote, The big advantage of this martial law is that if there's an agitator around, you can just stick him in jail and keep him there, end quote. Needless to say, tensions between mine operators and striking workers only worsened. In July, the Senate's Committee on Education and Labor began its three-month investigation of West Virginia's mining industry. The committee heard testimony from mine operators, West Virginia officials, and union members, including C Sid Hatfield, Fred Mooney, and Frank Keeney. During his testimony, Keeney read a letter dated July 11th that he had written to Governor Morgan. My dear Governor, there has existed in the coal fields of Mingo County for more than a year an industrial conflict of great magnitude. 
the coal miners have engaged in this struggle to better their conditions of employment and to secure those things guaranteed to them by the laws and constitution of West Virginia, namely, the right to belong to a labor organization of their craft without discrimination, to be paid semi-monthly, the selection of a check weighman to ensure the honest weighing of their coal, and to establish 2,000 pounds as a ton, and to be paid accordingly. With the exception of wages, all of these fundamental rights are expressed and protected in this state by positive law. Yet the state has spent large sums of money in policing the scene of this industrial conflict and in establishing and maintaining martial law. Keeney also proposes an arbitration board, its three members selected by owners and labor. The smoldering tensions were sparked into a flame on August 1st, as recounted in When Miners March by William C. Blizzard, son of Bill Blizzard. He writes, Sid Hatfield, meanwhile, had been indicted on a charge of taking part in the shooting up of the town of Mohawk. And why was he indicted? On the testimony, secret of course, of C.E. Lively. It seems that Lively had been very loud in demands that the miners do something drastic while he who was their pretended friend owned the restaurant under union headquarters at Matewan. On one occasion, he encouraged the miners to arm themselves and shoot up the non-union tipple. They had a reception committee of bloodhounds and the deputy sheriffs armed with the machine gun. Lively had been busy on the telephone, and the miners had fallen into his trap. Sid Hatfield, indicted for the Mohawk shooting, was ordered to appear at the courthouse at Welch in neighboring McDowell County in order to stand trial on August 1, 1921. There were probably many who advised Sid not to make this trip, as McDowell, like Mingo, was a stronghold of coal operators who refused to recognize the Union. But Sid, in company with his wife and a friend named Ed Chambers, also accompanied by his wife, nevertheless caught a train from Matewan to Welch, about 5.15 a.m. on the morning of August 1st. The party was accompanied by a deputy sheriff named James Kirkpatrick, and they had been promised full protection by the McDowell County authorities. Blizzard provides other details of that morning, such as the presence of a Baldwin guard outside their hotel window. According to Sally Chambers, Ed's wife, the men had left their guns in the hotel room. Blizzard continues. At the first landing of the steps, the Sid Hatfield group paused, and Sid threw up his hand and said, Hello, boys. These were his last words. He was answered by a fusillade of shots and rolled back down the steps, dead. Mrs. Hatfield ran into the office of High Sheriff Bill Hatfield, who had promised Sid protection just a few days before. She then attempted to come out of the courthouse, but was grabbed by a detective. She was not permitted to see her dead husband until she returned to Matewan. Miners were outraged by the killings. The United Mine Workers Journal declared, quote, Never in the history of the country did a coal-blooded murder ever create as much indignation as the double murder of Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, end quote. At Mother Jones's urging, Fred Mooney and Frank Keeney held an indignation rally on the state fairgrounds near Governor Morgan's private residence. 
Keeney, Mooney, and Jones also met with the governor and asked the governor to abolish the mine guard system as Republicans had promised to do in the 1920 election. In addition, they asked for the creation of a joint labor management commission to mediate disputes. In the days that followed, the District 17 officers waited for the governor's response while the UMWA attorney prepared for battle. Harold Houston wrote to an officer in Blair, instructing him to take $600 for the burial fund. Quote, the boys need guns, etc. Act at once. You can't trust the bearer of this note. Destroy it as soon as read. End quote. Sheriff Don Chafin got word that the miners were patrolling roads into Logan County from Boone. Chafin sent officers to investigate. On August 12th, the troopers got into a car accident with a local resident. Boone County resident William Wiley told the Senate committee what he heard about the accident. Wiley was vice president and general manager of a plant controlled by the Boone County Coal Corporation. They came to Sharples mounted on a dead run. I was not there, but I am told this. One of the five, going at a dead run across a railroad bridge, collided with a motor car and there was quite an accident. The horse was thrown and hurt somewhat, and one of the men was quite badly hurt, scarred up about his head and face, and the car was damaged. But the best information that I could get was that it was a pure accident. Now, they talked to this man pretty roughly. They asked him if he was a union or union sympathizer, which was like shaking a red flag to a bull in that particular locality, to men who were sympathizers of the union. After the man was released, he told his neighbors what happened, with some embellishment. By the time the story had circulated through Blair, it had 50 constables searching homes and abusing women and children. Armed miners marched into town looking for the offending officers and shot at a vehicle they thought was a police car. The driver reported the incident to Sheriff Chafin, who sent heavily armed troopers back into Clothier to arrest the shooters. But Union miners surrounded the troopers' car, disarmed them, and sent them back, unharmed. On August 17th, Governor Morgan gave his answer on the issues that Keeney and Mooney had raised in his office. There would be no commission, no action against the mine guard system, and no statement about Hatfield's and Chambers' murders. At meetings in Kanawha County towns like Ward, Eskdale, and Mucklow, Union miners plotted their next course of action. A mine superintendent reported hearing union organizer Savoy Holt say to those men gathered before him, quote, If you are men, you will be there, prepared as instructed. End quote. By August 30th, 600 men had gathered in Lens Creek Hollow, 10 miles from Charleston. Sheriff Don Chafin denounced the growing mob and declared that the insurgents would not enter his county. When reporter Herbert Blankenhorn visited the area two days later, he encountered a cordon of 100 armed men is stretched across the dirt road, the mine railroad, and the creek, barring out officers of the law, reporters, all inquiries. Inside lies the trouble. The miners have been mobilizing for four days. A snooping airplane has just been driven off with hundreds of shots. Accident and a chance acquaintance let me in. Blankenhorn describes the mood and the men. Lens Creek Valley is electric and bustling. They mention the towns they come from, dozens of names, 
in the New River region in Fayette County in counties far to the north. All are union men, some railroaders. After a while, we reach camp. Hundreds are moving out of it toward Logan. Over half are youths, a quarter are Negroes, another quarter seem to be heads of families, sober-looking, sober-speaking. Camp is being broken to a point four miles further on. Trucks of provisions, meat, groceries, canned goods move up, move up past us. The miners say, This time we're sure going through Domingo. Then Baldwin Feltz's has got to go. They got to stop shooting miners down there. Keeney turned us back the last time, him and that last governor. Maybe Keeney was right that time. This new governor got elected on a promise to take these Baldwin Feltzes out. If nobody else can budge them thugs, we're the boys that can. This time, we go through with it. What started you? This thing's been brewing for a long time. Then two of our people gets shot down on the courthouse steps. You heard of Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers? The governor gives them a safe conduct, they leave their guns behind, and get killed in front of their wives. It was a trap. But that was several weeks ago. Well, it takes a while for word to get around. Then they let his murder, that Baldwin Feltz guy, out on bond, free, with a hundred miners in jail in Mingo, on no charges at all, just martial law. Well, we heard from up the river that everybody was coming here. We knew what for. When we found lots had no guns, we sent back to get them. Bang, bang, from below is in the valley. That's a high power, one remarks. What are those damn fools wasting ammunition for? Maybe that airplane's come back. You know, several hundred servicemen was drilling this morning. After five minutes, they was putting right smart amount of snap into it. We have forded the creek a dozen times, have passed through Henshaw, a mean-looking mining village. We pass hundreds of men. Then an auto with women passes us. See our Red Cross nurses? The women have nurses' white headdresses with big blue letters on the band over the brow. UMW. They're the wives of some of the boys. They've had experience nursing. They say they'll see this through. Coal mining in West Virginia stopped. Miners with rifles by the thousand poured into Marmot, some riding on the tops of passenger trains. War maps with red and yellow pins appear in Charleston shop windows, showing Spruce Fork Ridge on the border of Logan County as the line, held by Sheriff Don Chafin with his deputies and mine guards, machine guns, and two bombing planes. The men that Blankenhorn meets at the upper camp give various reasons for marching. We want the law. We want justice. We're going to drive out the mine guards. Going to get our people out of jail. A protest against the governor's martial law in Mingo. Newspapers reported that renegade miners were, quote, ravishing the country, robbing passers-by, and threatening death to law enforcement, end quote. According to the governor, their sole purpose was, quote, terrorizing the government of the state, end quote. It didn't help that in Kanawha, a crime wave swept through the county with the help of bootleggers, bank robbers, gamblers, and pimps in Ford motor cars. Residents convened a Law and Order League and invited the governor, who blamed, quote, moonshine liquor, pistol-toting automobiles, end quote, for the recent trouble. 
the Secretary of War refused Governor Morgan's request for federal troops, so Morgan asked Sheriff Chafin to assemble a home guard. Chafin obliged, and after recruiting hundreds of local businessmen into surface, he had deputies round up miners from the surrounding towns. They could either join the defense guard or be fired from their jobs. A violent confrontation seemed imminent. Governor Morgan received a telegram from none other than Mother Jones. The venerated Angel of the Miners offered to be of assistance in restoring order. The meeting in the governor's office convinced Jones that Morgan had the miners' best interests at heart. Jones had met President Harding before and was willing to ask him to write to the miners and encourage them to lay down their arms. On August 24th, Jones stood on a hillside and addressed a throng of miners. She told them she had a letter from the president promising the end of the gunman system if they would go back home. Keeney and Mooney were there and were suspicious. They asked to see the telegram. When Keeney reached for it, she told him, quote, Go to hell, none of your business. End quote. Keeney addressed the miners. Quote, well, boys, that telegram is a fake, so is Mother Jones. We will just move on. End quote. Marking a permanent break in the bond between Jones and the miners from the Mountain State. The White House denied sending any such telegram. Jones would continue to advocate for her boys from afar later writing to Morgan for the release of imprisoned minors. She also wrote him that, quote, those young fellows, void of any experience in the great industrial conflicts, were carried away thinking they would change the world overnight with guns and bullets, end quote. But on the morning of August 25th, the undeterred men marched through Boone County in lines up to 20 miles long. They climbed steep grades, hiked along Lens Creek, and sang, will hang Tom Chafin from a sour apple tree to the tune of John Brown's body. Many of them wore overalls, but some of them, who were veterans of the Spanish-American War or World War I, wore their uniforms. All of the miners wore red bandanas around their necks, so the reporters on the scene called them rednecks and the stories that made national news. And their unit commanders warned them that anyone who abandoned the march would be treated like army deserters. Boone residents offered the men water, baked dishes, and vegetables from their gardens. But some county residents fled in fear. William Wiley testified that, quote, at any turn you were liable to butt into a colored man with a high-powered rifle, end quote. He also said, quote, I had no idea what terrorism could be until that anarchy came there without anybody to check it, end quote. Many reporters struggled to discern how this well-organized army mobilized so rapidly, spontaneously, and without a general. Keeney and Mooney, speaking to reporters from headquarters in Charleston, did nothing to disabuse them of this notion. In fact, the presidents of UMWA locals had mobilized their members, and the Army did have a commander, Bill Blizzard from Cabin Creek. Blizzard was a friend of Frank Keeney and had joined the UMWA when he was 10 years old. His father, Timothy, was also in the Union and had been blacklisted for it. And it was Bill's mother, Sarah, who, with other women, tore up the tracks of the CNO Canal, as I talked about in Episode 2. At 10,000 men, the army that Blizzard led was the largest armed insurrection since the Civil War. Sheriff Chafin sounded the alarm, the town's fire siren, alerting residents of the imminent invasion. 
he mobilized his own army of 44 deputies and 400 volunteers. Chafin opened up the, the county arsenal, which contained 10 machine guns, 1,000 rifles, and 67,000 rounds of ammunition. He also ordered three biplanes to fly over Boone County and report on Union movements. Chafin's men dug trenches, cut down trees, and built breastworks. They formed a 15-mile defensive line facing the Boone-Logan border to the northeast. The miners continued their march southwest through Boone. As the two armies prepared for war in his state, Governor Morgan wired the White House for help. President Harding sent Brigadier General Harry H. Bandholtz to investigate. Bandholtz was a four-star general and had earned the Distinguished Service Medal during World War I. At 5 a.m. on August 27th, Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney were summoned to meet Bandholtz in the governor's office. UMWA attorney Harold Houston was present as well. Bandholtz's words are written in Mooney's autobiography. You two are the officers of this organization, and these are your people. I am going to give you a chance to save them, and if you cannot turn them back, we are going to snuff this out just like that. And he snapped his fingers under our noses. He further said, This will never do. There are several million unemployed in this country now, and this thing might assume proportions that would be difficult to handle. We told him we believed it would be useless, but we would make an effort. Would you arm us with a statement, signed by you, telling the miners what the consequences will be if they do not turn back? I asked the general. No, he snapped. Then I believe our trip will be fruitless, I insisted. Yes, I will give you a note, he said, and immediately dictated one, had it transcribed, and handed it to us. Keeney and Mooney sent word that there would be a mass meeting in the town of Madison, which was in Boone County and about 30 miles south of the state capital. Keeney warned, quote, You are no longer dealing with state or county governments. You are dealing with the United States, the biggest and most powerful government on earth, end quote. The meeting got rowdy, and some, some miners denounced Keeney. He called for a vote. A vote by show of hands could have gone in the wrong direction, so he called for a voice vote, and the motion to disband won. Bandholtz left, believing that disaster had been averted. Chafin heard about the vote and began to disband his army. Keeney and Mooney waited at the station in Madison for the trains that state authorities promised would take the miners back home. Union leader Lewis White approached the District 17 officers. His nickname was Bad Lewis, and he was furious. What the hell you fellows mean by stopping these marchers? Mooney, to prevent them being slaughtered. Lewis, oh hell, what you two need is a bullet between each of your eyes. The enraged Lewis told the miners who were still in town that Chafin's men were killing women and children. Lewis and a dozen other men hijacked a train. As it rode towards Blair, they picked up more armed miners. Mooney later wrote that he believed that Chasen had hired Lewis as an agent provocateur to incite the Union men. Whatever Lewis's true motives, Chafin, Chafin called his defenders back into position. Meanwhile, Bill Blizzard and Ed Reynolds had marched about 20 miles from Madison to Blair with a column of 300 men. 
they had attended the meeting with Bandholtz and believed it had just been a show to appease the general and to save the Union. According to Reynolds, after the general left, Keeney told the men to do whatever they wanted. The miners and Blair prepared for action and agreed to a password. I come creeping. From Mingo County, the miners' ultimate destination, Captain Brockus led a 90-man force to support Chafin's defense. Their password was Amen. Sheriff Chafin then dispatched Brockus to arrest the men and Clothier who had disarmed his deputies two weeks earlier. On their way to Clothier, Captain Brockus's men arrested several miners and ordered them to march in front of them as human shields. Later, in the little town of Sharples, they encountered five miners holding rifles in front of a boarding house. Brockus asked the men who they were. That's our business, one of them answered. After a brief silence, one of the deputies shouted back, We've come after you, G.D. miners. Historian Robert Shogan describes the incident. The miners fired from the doorways and windows of their homes, turning on all the lights in their cabins and in the mine itself. The road on which Brockus's detachment marched was now bathed in light like a firing range. As the miners and police fired at each other at point-blank range, Brockus's men dove for cover in a ravine beside the road. His captives also tried to flee, but three of them were shot in the first volley. William Greer, a Matewan miner, was killed immediately. Another miner was seriously wounded and soon died. Another was shot three times but survived. With bullets bursting through the hills and gullies, even Brockus finally realized that prudence demanded retreat. His men headed back toward Logan, taking with them five, five prisoners. The next morning, Brockus discovered that four deputies were missing. The deputies had gotten lost in the dark. Union miners captured them and held them for exchange with the prisoners that Brockus had taken. Chafin would later blame Brockus for being, quote, very anxious to get hold, end quote, of the clothier miners and upsetting the shaky truce. But it was Chafin who had ordered the raid. Throughout Kanawha and New River, miners heard about it. As the story spread, it grew, once again, to include tax attacks on women and children. Miners got back on trains, commandeered trains, and headed back to Madison. It was called the Miner Special. Flat cars and boxcars were literally covered with men holding rifles and wearing the red handkerchiefs. Still more volunteers came from as far away as Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana. Miners in Holly Grove stole a Gatling gun from a company store. Newspapers across the nation expressed alarm about the, quote, armed mob dragging itself over the hills of West Virginia toward the bloodstained Mingo County, end quote, and wondered why the state allowed itself, quote, to be the happy hunting ground for sanguinary detective agencies and even more sanguinary miners, end quote. Once again, on August 29th, Governor Morgan wired the White House for military intervention. Once again, President Harding refused. But he issued a proclamation ordering the miners to disperse. Planes over Boone County dropped leaflets printed with this order. Harding sent General Bandholtz back to West Virginia for enforcement. If the miners refused to retreat, 
Bandholtz was authorized to put down the, quote, insurrectionary proceedings, end quote. When Baptist minister John Wilburn heard about the raid in Sharples, he reportedly told his friends, quote, the time has come for me to lay down my Bible and pick up my rifle and fight for my rights, end quote. At dawn on August 31st, Reverend Wilburn, his two sons, and almost 70 other volunteers awoke in the foggy woods after spending the night there. They came across three men they didn't recognize and asked for the password. The three Logan County sheriffs responded in unison, Amen. Wilburn and his men fired on the deputies, who all fell to the ground. Their leader, John Gore, shot back and hit African-American miner Eli Kemp. Wilburn walked over to Gore and shot him in the head. Kemp was carried back down the ridge and later died of his wounds. Fighting also broke out on the slopes of Blair Mountain. Relentless gunfire echoed through the valley throughout the day. The World War I veterans compared it to the fighting they'd witnessed in France's Argonne Forest. Fred Mooney writes of the events of that night. A carload of men came to my front gate and called me. Going out, I asked them what they wanted. Listen, said one of them, we think more of you and Keeney than we do of any other two men on earth, but we are going to Logan County this time, and if you don't stay out of our way, we are going to treat you the way we intend to treat the gunmen when we meet them. The best thing for you two to do is to clear out and stay out until we get through here. Get clear out and stay out until we get this thing cleared up. I immediately drove to Keeney's residence on Edgewood Avenue and related the news to him. We had received notice a few hours before of the indictments that were to be returned against us in Mingo County. These charges included five counts ranging from misdemeanor to murder. After thoroughly discussing the situation, we reasoned that if we were incarcerated while the excitement was at fever heat, that we would in all probability be treated as Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers had been served when they appeared for trial at Welch on August 1st. Viewing the situation from all angles, we decided to clear out, for a few days at least. The next day was Labor Day. Four to five thousand miners were on the march. One detachment attacked Craddock Fork with a Gatling gun they had stolen from a company store. Defenders fired back with their machine gun, which jammed after firing for three hours. Another machine gun eventually pushed them back. The miners continued their attack all day. Miner Ira Wilson recalled, quote, Machine guns cracked up there, so you would think the whole place was coming down on you, end quote. Wes Harris published his 2011 interview with Cecil Roberts in the book, Written in Blood, Courage and Corruption in the Appalachian War of Extraction. Roberts had been UMWA president since 1995 and recalled what his father told him about the bombings. The elder Roberts was five years old at the time. He said that all the men were gone and only the women were left. And they, I think, they might have been living in a tent at that time over on Seng Creek. And he said everyone was scared to death because they didn't know if their husbands or fathers were coming back or not. They knew the men were marching to Logan. He remembered. He used to tell this as though it happened yesterday. He said, We were all standing. All the women were gathered up, talking, and had all of their kids close by. 
there wasn't a man anywhere unless he was a really old, old person. And about that time, those airplanes flew over. They were going to bomb the miners. You never saw an airplane in 1921, right? Dad said that everyone just looked up like this, spellbound, standing just like frozen there, looking at those planes. Then all at once, one woman said, They're going to bomb us. Just like that, and panic struck everyone. Dad said my grandmother grabbed him under one arm and my Uncle Arnold under another. My Uncle Arnold would have been around three then. Started running and ran into a tent, shoved them under the bed, crawled under the bed with them until the planes were gone. And the history is that they did drop bombs, but not on those family members. They dropped them on the miners trying to get to Blair Mountain. The pilots were throwing bombs over the side of the planes. And the woman who screamed out, They're going to bomb us! was right. She just didn't know who. And Dad told us the story so eloquently, as though it had happened the day before. My dad never lost one bit of mental faculties until he died. And same with my mother. She's 92, sharp as a tack, both of them. I've been very much blessed with respect to that. Ultimately, no one was injured by the bombs, which were of two types. The gas bombs could cause extreme nausea, and the others consisted of six-inch pipes filled with black powder, nuts, and bolts. But an estimated 30 miners and three defenders did die in gun battles that day. UMWA Vice President Philip Murray attempted to visit the miners on the front lines and convince them to give up their fight. But interfering seemed too dangerous, and he returned to Charleston. Two of General Banhold's officers tried to assure the miners that if they laid down their weapons, they could return home without any trouble from the authorities. The, the miners were unconvinced. Heavy fighting continued, but word soon spread that the United States Army was on its way. The War Secretary had ordered 2,100 infantrymen from Camp Dix, New Jersey, Camp Sherman, Ohio, and Fort Knox, Kentucky, into West Virginia. Bill Blizzard, the general of the miners' force, told an Army captain that he could get his men out of the hills by dawn as long as some soldiers went with him. The miners welcomed the news of Uncle Sam's arrival, believing that they were on the same side against the coal companies and their gunmen. Thousands of miners poured out of the hills, many surrendering their, rep their weapons, but several others keeping them hidden. Chris Holt, who was 14 years old at the time, remembered the end of the fighting. He was interviewed in 1985 for the West Virginia public television program, Even the Heavens Weep. Well, the soldiers came in, they set up a headquarters down here at Sharples, and they set up patrols, and the next thing you know, everything quieted down. You saw these men coming in empty-handed, get on the train, and the train took them out to St. Albans, or wherever they were going to. No names were taken by the army. They just came in, and when they marched out into the field, everything stopped. Of course, the end of the fighting didn't necessarily mean peace. While many of the miners who surrendered boarded trains and returned home, Sheriff Don Chafin put scores of men in jail. Governor Ephraim Morgan blamed the insurrection on, quote, IWWs and communists and other agents of disorder, end quote. Since the marching miners had defied a presidential order, he wanted federal charges filed. 
but there was no evidence of an alien conspiracy, and the Harding administration took no action, in spite of the Justice Department's recommendation of criminal indictments. Bill Blizzard, the general of the Miners Army, was tried for treason in multiple locations, but all the charges against him were dropped. Only Walter Allen was convicted of treason. He fled the state, costing the Union $10,000 for the forfeited bond. Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney were charged with murder, but acquitted. Baptist minister James E. Wilburn and his son were pardoned by the next governor, Howard Gore, after they served just under four years of their sentences for murder of the Logan County deputies. In all, there were over a thousand state indictments, including 325 for murder and 24 for treason. In August of 1922, UMWA and the coal operators finally reached a wage agreement. But union recognition was not extended to the 70,000 miners who had gone on strike without a union contract. So, even though he was on strike for over two years, George Eccles, for example, did not benefit from this agreement. Many miners were outraged. Then, as soon as the trials ended, the national office cut off all funding to District 17. Keeney and Mooney couldn't continue their support of the strike without support of the national office. So the strike ended, and the men who had lived in Lick Creek found other jobs in the region or mined coal elsewhere, but none of them signed yellow dog contracts and returned to union mines. UMWA con faced continued setbacks in the state, as did organized labor throughout the country. Over the next several years, membership dwindled. It would not rebound until President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the National Industrial Recovery Act in 1933. Among other provisions, this New Deal law gave workers, quote, the right to organize and bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing, end quote, and stated that employers could not require a worker, quote, to refrain from joining, organizing, or assisting a labor organization of his own choosing, end quote. Some of the same reforms that Keeney, Mooney, Blizzard, and Jones had sought. Mother Jones continued to champion other causes, including child labor. Despite the rift with Keeney and Mooney, she contacted Governor Morgan to seek pardons for the miners imprisoned during the mine wars. Jones died in 1930. Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney had resigned from District 17 leadership in 1924 after heated disagreements with the National Union's president, John L. Lewis. Fred Mooney worked briefly with Keeney in 1930 in a new union called the Reformed United Mine Workers Union. In 1952, at the age of 64, Mooney committed suicide. In 1945, Bill Blizzard was appointed president of District 17, where he served until he got into a fistfight with Lewis's brother and was forced to resign. He died of cancer in 1958. Frank Keeney continued to organize West Virginia miners, joining rival unions to the UMWA. After 20 years and varying levels of success, Keeney left the labor movement. His later employment included owning and operating a nightclub in Charleston and working as a parking lot attendant. He died at age 88. When the mine wars first ended, 
editorials in mainstream newspapers expressed support for the insurgents who had suffered, quote, the monstrosities alleged against Don Chapin, end quote. To present their case to the court of public opinion, coal companies and other corporate interests in the state founded the American Constitutional Association. They alleged that Snoops and other enemies had fabricated tales about, quote, the best blood of the nation, end quote. They also wrote that, quote, the purest Anglo-Saxon descendants live in the mountain regions of the state, end quote. Their 1923 pamphlet, Life in a West Virginia Coal Field, extolled the virtues of the homes, schools, and churches that the coal companies provided. Philip Conley was the managing director of the ACA and would be entrusted with writing a new state history for West Virginia schools, even though he had no formal training in the subject of history. The text was first published in 1931. In 11 updates over 41 years, the mine wars were never mentioned. Historian C. Belmont Keeney III heard nothing about his great-grandfather Frank in school. In 1979, after Conley died, Dr. William T. Doherty published a new text that devoted an entire chapter to the mine wars. Most counties opted to use a text that gave the mine wars a two-page mention. But today, institutions like the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum are working to preserve and teach this important history. I was able to rely on many sources for this episode, including James Green's book, The Devil is in These Hills, and Fred Mooney's autobiography, Struggle in the Coalfields. Thank you very much, University of Arkansas Library, for the interlibrary loan. I also refer to the research of C. Belmont Keeney III, great-grandson of Frank Keeney. And there are many other sources listed in the show notes at AmericanEpistles.com. It will really help the show if you leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. The music is performed by Pretlow Lee Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>